It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, November 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how one state Senate Democrat looks to allocate COVID relief funds. Then the latest in a jumbled series of vaccine guidance for state universities. And Mississippi stares down a shortage of nurses. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The state is sitting on more than $1 billion of federal COVID-19 relief money, and lawmakers have a fair amount of discretion in terms of how to spend it. Last week, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman appointed a Senate Select Committee to handle allocation of the aid. On yesterday's show, we talked with Senator John Polk, a Republican from Hattiesburg, who will chair the effort. Today, we speak with another committee member, Senator Albert Butler, who's a Democrat from Port Gibson. He lays out his priorities for the funds in a conversation with MPB's Desiree Frazier. One of the things I can say, and that is, I'm honored to have been considered to serve on the committee. And, uh, you know, it gives me an opportunity to continue to toot my horn about improving the state of Mississippi, and that's all areas, but also focusing on the economic cardinal that could exist in Southwest Mississippi. And uh, being a part of that board, I think, give me an opportunity to echo uh, those things. Uh, you take from the Mississippi Delta all the way down to uh, Wilkinson County or Adams County. That is an interest of mine. And I thank the Lieutenant Governor for uh, appointing me to that position because it would give me an opportunity to just stop talking and start being a part of making some decisions as to what we can do. I understand that those funds must be used for items like water, sewer, broadband, and COVID 
health care related concerns. What's on your agenda? What's important to you in your district? Well, you know, broadband is is primary. Uh, that's one of the major things. In, in our areas down here, uh, water and soil. This this is an old area, uh, and the uh, sewer systems and the water system. We're constantly getting uh, letters from communities talking about improving their water system. It gives us the opportunity to look at that and give them a chance to do that. Another thing that it does for us, it, it gives us an opportunity to, to look at how we can utilize the Mississippi River to encourage industrial development and the, and the farmers in the area, how we can better serve them by trying to redirect the flow of water. So uh, I, I, I think this is something that can really help the southern southwestern part of, of, of the state. In your portion of the state, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted these areas like water, sewer, broadband, um, the health health expenses that people are incurring? Well, I, I know for a fact that it has had a drastic impact as, in reference to the water uh, and the sewer. And it really limits its opportunities for individuals uh, encouraging redevelopment or encouraging individuals to come and settle in the area. So uh, it's, I, I think that that's one of the things that uh, individuals are looking for. And I've gotten comments and I've gotten requests on those things. Another thing too, educationally, uh, you know, our educational facilities need improving. And uh, there are some things that we need to do to improve as, uh, to improve the area educationally. But that water and that soil makes it better for those facilities to accommodate the students. Do you think that you will make recommendations before the start of the January legislative session? Yes, I do. I, I, I really do. And one of the things that I'm, I'm reaching out to individuals in the area now, uh, asking them to submit requests that we can take under consideration so that I might be able to go back and present them to the committee as a whole. I know that Lieutenant Governor Hoseman has said that the goal is not to have a two- to three-year impact with these funds, but to have generational impact. Right. And, and, and that's one of the things that we have been emphasizing anyway. And uh, I have to say that uh, our, our Lieutenant Governor did emphasize that to remember uh, this is a one-time opportunity. And you want to take advantage of this one-time opportunity to, to continue to build and last uh, a lifetime. So some of the primary things that we have been looking at, such as water, sewer, educational opportunities, um, developing them in such a way as that uh, the, their communities can build on them. Albert Butler is a Mississippi state senator from Port Gibson. Coming up, Schrodinger's vaccine mandate on public college campuses. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. 
Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. It's been a dizzying few months for the State Institutions of Higher Learning Board and vaccine mandates. In September, the board held a surprise vote that determined no public college or university in the state should be allowed to implement a COVID-19 vaccine mandate on campus. Then, new federal rules that require U.S. government contractors to be vaccinated forced the board to override its initial decision and mandate that state university employees get the vaccine. However, it's now become clear that two Mississippi public universities are not recipients of major federal contracts and would therefore be exempt from the federal guidelines and subject to the original IHL ban on mandates. Those two universities are Alcorn State and the Mississippi University for Women. Got it? Joining us to help make better sense of the situation is Nora Miller. She's the president of the Mississippi University for Women. The latest action that the board took allowed institutions to mandate vaccinations as required by the presidential executive order. That executive order does not apply to MUW as we do not have federal contracts that exceed uh, $250,000 so that we are still bound by their earlier action, which did not allow us to issue a mandate. You're saying that you're going back, that the IHL board is mandating that you not allow mandating? (laughs) Yes, that's basically what it is. Their first action did not allow any of the institutions to mandate vaccines. And then the presidential order, executive order came out, And they realized that for institutions that had federal contracts, that they would have to abide by the by the president's executive order or there would be millions of dollars lost. So they exempted them from their earlier action. We are still bound by that first action that says we cannot mandate vaccines. Why doesn't the university have federal contracts or more federal contracts? We are not a research institution. We have plenty of federal grants, but the president's executive order does not apply to grants, only to contracts. How many employees are vaccinated? Do you know that at your university? We don't know that. We did have some incentive programs to encourage vaccination, but not everyone entered the incentive program. And I, so I, I think the the number of people who entered that incentive program would understate our vaccination level among amongst faculty and staff. When the IHL instituted their first order, which was you could not mandate vaccines, I know that there were letters of protest and groups that were forming to protest. Has there been concern among the faculty and staff at the W about those who don't get vaccinated and perhaps posing a risk to others who have been vaccinated? 
there certainly is a concern, but our faculty senate did not take action. I think they were meeting to discuss, you know, whether they should do a letter, you know, asking me to mandate. And then before they met, IHL did their first action where they said that we could issue a mandate. So, so there hasn't been any communication. I, I think there's concern on both sides of this. There's concern people who want everyone on this campus to be vaccinated. And there's a concern from others who, um, you know, would, would probably, you know, might very well opt to leave employment or, you know, leave or drop enrollment if one were required. So it's, you know, it's, we've got people on both sides of this. Is that a fear of yours that you would lose faculty or staff members? Uh, it is a concern, um, primarily because we are, um, we are a small institution. We don't have a lot of bench depth. You know, we have maybe one person that performs a certain function, whereas, you know, at a, at a larger institution, they may have three or four people who do something and, and losing anybody is, is tough. But if you lost one person and they took a whole lot of knowledge with them and we didn't have somebody else trained and in that spot, it could put us in a really hard spot. In lieu of vaccinations not being required, are there other mitigation efforts on campus? Well, certainly we are all still, you know, wearing masks indoors and we are trying to social distance still as much as possible. Um, we are offering our services, you know, a lot of our uh, student activities that perhaps normally would have involved being inside and and eating, you know, instead of we're going to be eating or drinking, we're outside so that people, you know, feel a little bit safer. Um, we're limiting seating in auditoriums and um, at indoor sporting events. So we are, you know, we are taking measures and, and we have not had any pushback really on the masks. So I know um, some other institutions are Mississippi State has has loosened up their mask requirements, um, but we're all still abiding by the CDC guidelines. Lowndes County, uh, as of this morning, is still um, in a has a substantial rate of community transmission, so that all people, whether vaccinated or not, are required to wear masks on campus. Nora Miller is the president of the Mississippi University for Women. Thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming up, troubling realities and an uncertain future for staffing in Mississippi hospitals. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The trouble for Mississippi hospitals started amidst the COVID-19 surge this summer. 
when nurses began to leak out the state leak out the state in pursuit of eye popping hourly rates for their services in places like Texas and Tennessee. Mississippi's emergency management agency brought in hundreds of medical professionals on short term contracts to fill the gap, but those deals expired at the end of October. Now the state is feeling the full weight of a profound nursing shortage, and experts say they're worried. Susan Russell is chief nursing and safety officer for the Singing River Health System. She speaks with Desiree Fraser. This time last year, we had zero, zero contract and agency staff working in our inpatient nursing area. And today we have 12% of our openings that are filled filled with contract and agency. Plus, we have almost 300 RN openings in our system. And the 300 openings don't take into account that we have more beds closed strictly due to RN shortages than we have ever had. Since last Friday, we had to close an additional 15 beds in Pascagoula. In addition to the 18 beds we had to close almost two months ago due to shortages. And we have an eight-bed ICU that had to close last November in Pascagoula, once again, on that one campus just due to shortages. And that is a bed today I could put patients in waiting in the ED. Our Ocean Springs campus did close 30 beds on Friday, and our Gulfport campus had to close 15 beds since Friday, once again, as the MEMA nurses got extracted. And we just don't have nurses that are available to take their place. What does that mean for the services? It means extreme stress and pressure, also delays. You know, right now it's a little bit better day than we've seen in several months. By that, I mean our normal ED volume is down by about 25%, um, which we have seen throughout these COVID surges. Afterward, there's less patient demand in the ED. But even with that less demand, like you said, on our campuses, we have patients that need to get into a regular hospital bed that can't get into a hospital bed because there's not a nurse to take care of that patient. So you can see when the volumes go up, as they typically do, it's going to be more of a demand and more delay. Uh, you know, the last couple of months, it's very common for me to get a call about, you know, why can't my mother, brother, sister, cousin get in the hospital? You've got beds that are there, and it's not a bed issue. It is strictly an RN plus other additional staff. There's widespread staff shortages. We see that even in fast food restaurants. But the issue is there's only a finite amount of RNs that can work in these hospitals. It's called acute care nursing. And on top of that, specialty areas like ICU, OR, labor and delivery, it takes another year of training to get these individuals where they can work in those areas. So, you know, even if I had a brand new RN today who was going to work with me, it's not going to help me open up that ICU until they can get months or a year's worth of training to get them where they're able to do the work they need to. Does that mean that patients are flown to other facilities? How do you manage that? Well, right now we are managing because of the lower volumes, but I can tell you there was an entity in the state, it's part of our state system of care, where we have gone under what's called MedCom. That is where patients from lower functioning facilities, that means like rural hospitals, that don't have the breadth of service that we do, would send their patients to us. And I know during the fourth surge that we had, 
that started uh, the very end of July and ended just a few weeks ago. We received over 100 patients throughout the southern region that were shared between ourselves. Uh, We're a level two system of care facility, which is the highest functioning system in the state other than the one that UMMC operates, which is a level one. And those duties were shared with Memorial of Gulfport, Forest General. And like I said, all of our hospitals helped out those lower functioning hospitals. But what happened was during the last search, there weren't enough staff to take care of those patients. So many times there were very, very long delays in our ED. Uh, We had to postpone services such as surgeries, cath procedures, and other things just to try to make it through those few really difficult weeks. But since then, all of those level two facilities have had to close additional beds. I know I'm on a CNO call, which is chief nursing officers with Forest General. Forest General said they were going to have to close another 75 beds, which probably have closed by today. That is very scary because they were still holding patients in their ED as well. So definitely safety and your likelihood of having a good outcome is decreased by not having an available bed that is staffed by a trained RN to take care of you. This sounds very frightening. I've been in healthcare for 38 years, and I'll tell you, the last week has probably been the scariest I've ever been through. MEMA has contracted for healthcare workers for 60 days. You know that ended October 31st. Yes. The agency says that hospitals can contract workers on their own and then reimburse by FEMA. Is that an option that you can consider? That is not totally the way the program is worked up. The state, you know, clearly the hospital can pay the funds, but, you know, you're looking at costs that are uh, around $150 an hour per nurse. Clearly, healthcare systems, and in this state, you're looking at predominantly nonprofit facilities, cannot continue to pay those rates. We are paying very escalated rates, um, but right now we are to the point we cannot continue to pay $100 plus for every single RN. Plus, RNs are working on that prices rate, which is what MEMA pays. Uh, And once again, being taken out of state to Texas and Florida where those rates are still available. You know, it's just unsustainable for hospitals to pay $150 an hour to staff their beds. They just can't do it. What is the answer in your estimation? Is there an answer? There are a series of answers. There's not going to be just one solution. The biggest thing that I can advocate for is something from the state to help retain nurses. That's the first thing. Stop the brain drain. Stop the bleeding of our staff to go work on these contracts and agency uh, for these agencies that they feel like, you know, like I said, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for these nurses to make this kind of money. But if we can just incentivize staff to stay where they are, it will start the stabilization process. We know these crisis and high cost agency travel contracts will go away, but we need time for that to happen. And in the meantime, Citizens in the state need care. So what's going to happen for the next three or five months if we don't get some stability? So that is the concern of every chief nursing officer. Just get it some time. And I don't think it's going to be another MEMA contract. I do think it's going to need to be a retention bonus for agreement for you to stay here for another year, two years. This is what the state, through its CARES Act, can uh, pay you to retain you. 
it would cost less to retain than to keep recruiting in these individuals who are only here for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it is. At the end of the day, they're not going to stay in the state because there are nurses who want to stay in our state, in our system, but we have to financially make it worth their while. Not to travel, knowing these contracts will start dropping off in a couple of months. Susan Russell is Chief Nursing and Safety Officer for the Singing River Health System. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.